Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Unabashed. The most unpredictable. Becomes a headline. The most volatile. Outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities. Welcome to Grant Thamasha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindu Sun Times. I'm your host, Milan Vaishnav. The competitive and often antagonistic relationships among China, India, and Pakistan have roots that predate their possession of nuclear weapons. Yet, the significant transformation of nuclear capabilities that is now underway in all three countries simultaneously complicates and mitigates their geopolitical rivalries. This is one of the central arguments advanced by a new report authored by my colleague Ashley J. Tellis, who holds the Tata Chair in Strategic Studies at Carnegie. The report is titled Striking Asymmetries, Nuclear Transitions in Southern Asia. It's an authoritative account of the transitions in the nuclear weapons programs in China, India, and Pakistan over the last two decades. To discuss this new report and its implications, I am pleased to welcome Ashley back to the show. Ashley, nice to see you and congrats on the report. Well, thank you, Melon. It's a pleasure to be back, as always. So you publish your landmark book, India's Emerging Nuclear Posture, uh, more than two decades ago, in 2000. And you write in the preface to this report that in some ways, uh, this report is a sequel. You know, for the last two decades, you had hoped to put together parallel studies on the Chinese and Pakistani nuclear programs akin to what you did for India. Life got in the way, geopolitics got in the way, but we're looking at a very changed landscape in Southern Asia today. Tell us a little bit about what brought you back to this idea uh, that was born, you know, and in, in the year 2000. So when I did that work, you know, soon after the nuclear tests, actually at the request of the U.S. Air Force, which was our principal sponsor at RAND, uh, the idea was that I would expand it at least to Pakistan and possibly also to China. Uh, we had done some work on both those countries, but unfortunately, they didn't see the light of day for a variety of bureaucratic reasons. Uh, and so I thought that there would be plenty of time uh, to go back to looking at Pakistan and China, if not in a book-length work, at least in a monograph-length. Uh, but, un you know, fortunately, unfortunately, I went into the U.S. government and then got distracted by a whole set of things. And after I came to Carnegie, I actually began to think about, well, it would be good to go back and see what has changed. Because even when I did the India work in 2020, India was just at the beginning of a long sort of transformation as an overt nuclear power. Uh, but, you know, it's really the pandemic at the end of the day that sort of, you know, confined me uh, to base for two years and gave me the chance to pull together threads that I'd already been thinking about and actually write the book. In fact, I started doing the workshops for the book about four or five years before I actually did the writing. So I did workshops in Beijing, in, in Delhi and in Islamabad. But that was, again, all by way of preparation to one day. Uh, you know, going back and, and doing a serious piece of analysis. Uh, and then, of course, the pandemic, you know, for all its perversities, made that possible. 
and you know, so the report is really the end result of two years of forced confinement at home. So I want to get into the details of each of the countries, but l- let me first, you know, ask you about the kind of macro level, the changing trends in regional nuclear modernization, right? You note that China is modernizing its arsenal in an effort to limit U.S. capacity to do damage, but it's also expanding its offensive force to counter India. India, in turn, is moving away from its historic sort of you know singular focus on Pakistan, devoting greater attention to China. Uh, Pakistan, you write, and I want to quote here, is building the largest, most diversified, and most capable nuclear arsenal possible, uh, which sounds quite scary. Tell us a bit uh, at the kind of 30,000-foot level about the changing motivations in each of these countries as you survey the landscape. So when I did the last book, which was in 2000, uh, the expectation was that you now have three nuclear powers in proximity to one another. Uh, There are always complications when states begin to build nuclear arsenals. But there was a sort of quiet confidence based on the expression of intent at that time that the arsenals in all three countries would be relatively modest and they would provide enough uh, security to each of the three countries. And we would learn to live with the reality of a nuclear Southern Asia, if not in ways that we had expected earlier, in ways that would at least produce a new sort of equilibrium. And there were three dimensions, I think, to the four structures that were imagined uh, around the turn of the century. First, that the arsenals in each of these three countries would be relatively small. That the nuclear strategies that they pursued would be relatively simple, focused primarily on retaliation in case of nuclear attacks on oneself. And that the posture that each of these countries would adopt would be one that is relatively relaxed, which is they didn't have to ape the United States uh, and Russia with respect to having ready nuclear forces that were primed for prompt operations. So those were the expectations uh, that were dominant in all three countries, actually, around the time when I wrote the first book. And now when I look at things, you know, 20 odd years later, Each of these dimensions has been transformed in very significant ways. Uh, So in all three countries, uh, the arsenals are not small uh, with the numbers that were advertised at the time, uh, you know, holding today. Uh, The Chinese arsenal during the Cold War uh, never exceeded 200 warheads. Today, we are anticipating a Chinese arsenal that will be two three, perhaps even more than four times that size. Uh, India was talking of an arsenal of somewhere around 100 to maybe 200 weapons. Uh, The Indian arsenal has been the slowest growing uh, of the three countries, but it is still a far more substantial arsenal than was anticipated then. Uh, And Pakistan, I remember the conversations around the time of the 1998 test when people were really talking of an arsenal of about 60 weapons or 70 weapons. And today the Pakistani arsenal is, you know, probably uh, double that size. So just in terms of sheer size, the numbers have been increasing dramatically. 
the nuclear strategies, which were previously retaliation-only strategies, have also morphed. And uh, the Chinese, of course, leading in terms of innovations because they have capabilities now that allow them to do much more than just simple retaliation. Uh, the Pakistanis uh, have developed capabilities uh, along, a long, along a huge spectrum, you know, the tactical nuclear weapons at one end, all the way to strategic nuclear weapons at the other. And India seems to be, again, the, the slowest in terms of innovation where uh, its nuclear strategies are concerned. They're still focused primarily, in fact, solely on retaliation. And the argument that I make in the book is that that can be explained primarily by India's conventional force advantages vis-a-vis Pakistan and China. But the big change, which I think applies in all three countries, is really the shift in the posture, where uh, previously the expectation was the deterrence would be maintained at fairly relaxed levels of readiness. Today, in all three countries, the shift has been to move towards speedier nuclear responses, which means keeping some segments of the arsenal ready to go at relatively short notice. And that brings in its trail a whole series of complications. Uh, And so what the report really attempted to do was to document this uh, in all its details so that it's not simply conclusions that are offered at the level of, you know, broad arm waving but to actually show in the detail that these transformations are both significant and enduring. Maybe I want to step back for a second and ask you about method, because studying these countries, particularly these three countries, nuclear strategies can hardly be straightforward, right? I mean, you're trying to understand some of the most sensitive uh, plans and secrets really a country can have. Take us behind the scenes, if you will, you know, how, how did you actually compile the sources and materials necessary to actually put together this kind of a report? So it seems paradoxical, but there is in fact a huge body of literature uh, on each of these three countries. The problem is it's not always reliable. And so the challenge is not necessarily getting the information but making judgments about what pieces of information are credible and actually can be used to deduce conclusions that make sense. And the two sources uh, that I think matter more than most uh, in doing research like this is one being able to talk to people in these countries who have a good sense of what their national enterprises are. And this was certainly easier to do in the case of India and Pakistan, because I have known many of the personalities involved in these programs uh, for many years personally. It was much harder to do in the case of China. And this is where, you know, Tong Zhao was extremely helpful in bringing together uh, Chinese colleagues who were interested in nuclear weapons issues into a workshop. And I should just interject, this is our Carnegie colleague uh, based in China, Tong Zhao. Absolutely. And in previous years, when Michael Swain was still at, uh, at Carnegie, he had run a series of crisis management workshops, which I was very lucky to be a part of, and got a chance to meet Chinese military officers and you know individuals who were at the Academy of Military Sciences and so on and so forth, where we actually discussed nuclear weapons issues. So I was lucky to be able to sort of correlate 
the information that is out there with you know the judgments offered by people who are thoughtful scholars of the subject and so the point i think that is worth sort of emphasizing is that the issue is not so much a deficit of data per se but rather having the right theory of the case to understand which elements in the data are reliable and which are likely to be less so. And this is really a matter of gestalt, right? You've got to understand what the gestalt with respect to nuclear weapons in each of these three countries is. And it doesn't assure you perfect accuracy with respect to the data, because there will always be gaps. As you point out, you know, these are like these countries' deepest secrets. They're not gonna, they're not gonna share them with you readily. But you can make reasonable uh, inferences once you sort of get that gestalt right. And I'm not claiming that I have the gestalt right, but I feel a lot more confident that I simply did not do what crudely might be called inductive research, which is go through all the data, accumulate that data, and then say, this is what the story is. Uh, because that leads you into exaggerated inferences in in you know, either minimizing the problem or exaggerating the problem. Uh, but the fact that I was able to sort of better understand what is it that is driving these transformations and then test out some of these hypotheses with the individuals who were involved in the programs uh, in at least two and to some degree in China as well, I think was extremely helpful. I would add just one other thing. I mean, I've had conversations with you know, folks in the United States and particularly our, our allies in Europe who follow these programs consistently. I've had these for two decades and those two were extremely helpful. I mean, in a sense, actually, the, the two decade gap may have really served you very well in, in, in terms of putting this within a framework uh, and, and, and having these conversations that have played out over time. Uh, let me just follow up on China. Maybe it's a good place to start. You know, I was really intrigued to read in your report that that Mao was originally quite dismissive of nuclear weapons. He, he went so far as to call them, quote unquote, paper tigers. Uh, now, eventually he changed his tune, of course, but China did for a number of decades persist with a rather conservative nuclear strategy. Uh, tell us a little bit about what this conservative strategy looked like in practice, and then how did things change in the post-Cold War era? So Mao is a very interesting figure because, you know, he embodies sort of colossal contradictions, right? Uh, at one level, he is a realist, you know, in the deepest recesses of his DNA. He understands power. He's come to power at the, you know, through the battle of a gun. And so you would think that when nuclear weapons were demonstrated in war, at the end of the Second World War, he would immediately recognize their value and their importance. And yet he dismisses them. And in retrospect now, I suspect that dismissal was partly because there were ideological blinkers that shaped that dismissal. And the key ideological blinker is, you know, can any technology be truly transformative in human history? And that's a very peculiarly Marxist question. Because for the Marxist, you know, it's only social movements. And it's essentially the, you know, movement of the proletariat and the organization of the proletariat, which ends up in revolutionary action. That is the motor force in history. The Soviets actually went through this debate themselves. 
once nuclear weapons actually enter the arsenal, which is, is revolution the answer to large-scale social transformation or have nuclear weapons checkmated the forces of revolution? Mao goes through this too. And so until about 1955, he hews to the idea that nuclear weapons really are not a substitute for the revolutionary spirit. And it is the Chinese people's ability to suffer and inflict pain in turn that will be really decisive you know, for Chinese security. But after 1955, he begins to change his mind because he sees China as a victim of American coercion, particularly in the crises on China's periphery. And he begins to very astutely recognize that revolutionary action is not going to be a substitute for having nuclear weapons. And this becomes more and more clear to him after the Korean crisis, after the Korean War. And so he uses the relationship with the Soviet Union at that point to slowly acquire nuclear capabilities, which would over time mature into a Chinese nuclear weapons program. Uh, which then becomes publicly visible in 1964 when you know China tests uh, nuclear weapons. So there is a there is a transformation that takes place in Mao's thinking. Now on the conservative side, having developed nuclear weapons, right, he also begins to recognize that these instruments are best for preserving your security, but they're not great for very much else. And so what he does, unlike, you know, what the Soviets did and what the United States did, was to build what could be considered, you know, the smallest possible arsenal that was consistent with his vision of what was required for security. And so he builds this relatively modest force, you know, 200 weapons or less, at a time when the Soviet Union and the United States were building thousands of nuclear weapons. And my view is that it comes together because of a, I mean, this solution comes together because there were two factors. One was his conviction that these are nasty weapons and you can do a lot of damage to an adversary that threatens China, even with a few weapons. And two, because China was not the principal player in the Cold War landscape. The United States and, and the Soviet Union were at each other's throats and their capabilities checkmated each other. And so Mao was content to exploit the sort of public goods quality that nuclear weapons have for deterrence to ride under that, you know, ride under that cover. Now, of course, all this has changed uh, at a point when China is increasingly becoming, you know, the principal competitor to the United States. And so it's not surprising to me that the Chinese are rethinking uh, the kinds of nuclear capabilities they need in this new environment. You write on China that the most important enduring element of its nuclear strategy is its steadfast conviction that the fundamental utility of nuclear weapons is really about deterring nuclear attacks and nuclear coercion rather than nuclear war fighting. When it comes to India, uh, you say something very interesting. You say that the political aims of its nuclear program have remained focused largely on advancing economic growth with the national security benefits relegated to the periphery. You know, sitting here in the year 2022, does this statement about India hold true even today? I think so. Because when you look at the allocation of resources, you know, within the Indian nuclear program, and I use the nuclear program now in its most comprehensive sense, civilian plus military, 
the bulk of India's resources still go into the civilian side of the program. The civilian side of the program attracts the best nuclear scientists in terms of the monetary allocations that the Indian states make to civilian nuclear power. It is still far more substantial than what is done to nuclear weapons and so on and so forth. And I think this is because at the end of the day, India is both a relatively satisfied state and a relatively secure state. That is for all the challenges that it has vis-a-vis Pakistan and vis-a-vis China. India still has mass on its side. It's a huge country and it's not a pushover. And so, and it has political ambitions that are relatively conservative. It's not looking to revise, you know, the territorial status quo in any dramatic way. It doesn't have grievances vis-a-vis neighbors that require correction through the use of force. And so but on. it also has significant conventional forces that would act as a deterrent. Absolutely. It has conventional advantages vis-a-vis both its principal local adversaries. So that leaves it in a position where it actually can, you know, do a lot with a little. And I think it is those structural factors that really shape India's decision to maintain and deploy a relatively modest force, uh, even as it is tinkering with innovations on the margin, you know, in terms of increasing missile ranges, diversifying, you know, the delivery systems to some degree. But by and large, it's not a driven power. It's not driven to sort of reach the frontiers of technological excellence. Uh, where nuclear weapons are concerned. Hey, Grant the Marshall listeners. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Putting this show together each week is a labor of love, but it takes a lot of work to put out a great show every week. If you'd like to support the work we do at Grant the Marshall, please visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcasting platform, so you'll be the first to know when a new episode rolls out. But so this is really interesting, right? Because you note that, you know, what is most striking, and you just sort of alluded to this just a second ago, what's most striking about India's continued adherence to uh, the pursuit of a credible minimum deterrent um, you know, it, it it has this disinclination, I think is the word you use, to rapidly expand its arsenal, despite all of the advances demonstrated by its rivals, right? So I guess my question to you is, when you have Pakistan doing the nuclear build-out that you document, when you have China changing its strategy from a more conservative to a more aggressive approach, you know, how has India maintained uh, the posture that it has. I mean, you would think that you know it would it would get caught up in this in this spiral, right? In this arms race, right? And so, let me make a technical point, and then I want to talk about the politics of it. The technical point is that India has the capacity to build a very large nuclear arsenal very quickly if it chooses to do so, because it's got a large civilian nuclear state and it's got reactors get can produce uh, weapons-usable plutonium, uh, you know, very, very quickly if it wanted to. But again, the the anomaly is that it has not gone in this direction. And then the question becomes why. And I think there are two different reasons, one for China and one for Pakistan. Vis-a-vis China, the answer is, at the end of the day, whatever the rivalries between China and India are, They do not see China as posing existential threats to India. 
that the grievances over territory, the grievances over status are not grievances that can be resolved by building a large nuclear arsenal, because nuclear weapons, in a sense, are quite peripheral uh, to the resolution of those issues. And so vis-a-vis China, for all the discomfort that China causes India, uh, India still does not see China as a first-rank nuclear threat, which has to be countered by a massive, responsive buildup of Indian nuclear weapons. Go to Pakistan. For Pakistan, the biggest challenge that India sees is not conventional war, because the Pakistanis are relatively weaker compared to India, nor is it nuclear war, because the Indians know they have the capacity to retaliate. And Pakistan has severe geographic constraints that would really imperil post-war constitution if it got into a nuclear exchange with India. For India, the real problem from Pakistan is essentially uh, sub-statal war. And that is essentially terrorism, insurgency, and so on and so forth. And the Indians, you know, essentially control the cycle of escalation vis-a-vis Pakistan. That is, as long as India is able to tolerate this subnational conflict, the chances of escalating to nuclear exchange are minimal. The issues of nuclear exchanges arise only if India responds through massive use of conventional force. And this is something that successive Indian governments have refrained from doing, including Prime Minister Modi, who is usually viewed as someone who is, you know, extremely pugnacious and, you know, ready to hit hard uh, at, at, at Pakistani malfeasance. But even Modi has been very, very cautious in the use of Indian military power. And so I think India has made the judgment that whatever the transformations in Pakistan's nuclear capabilities may be, India's decisions basically determine whether those Pakistani nuclear capabilities ever become relevant in a political sense. And they have essentially defanged those capabilities through their political choices rather than through a rush to find technical solutions at the nuclear level. So, you know, on Pakistan, there is a contrast that you draw uh, between it and India and China, right? Pakistan's nuclear weapons, you write, were explicitly conceived as military instruments uh, that you might have to deploy if if push comes to shove uh, for purposes of of ensuring national safety and sovereignty. Uh, So what explains that difference? Is it because Pakistan sees India as an existential threat, and but but not vice versa? Is it sort of the mirror image of what you just described? I think that's part of the answer, but not the entire answer. So part of the answer is that Pakistan is really fearful for its security on any, you know, given day of the week. And they believe that were it not for their nuclear weapons, India would have eliminated Pakistan as an independent political entity. And so those structural pressures on security drive them to build up, you know, the largest possible arsenal they can and the most usable arsenal, because they really think that they may one day be confronted by an Indian threat that requires use. So they take use issues much more seriously. But there is a second dimension, and that is the leadership of the Pakistani 
nuclear program now resides entirely with the Pakistani military. And, you know, this is a bureaucracy that is a very focused bureaucracy. And this is quite unlike India, where India's nuclear weapons are developed by civilian, you know, officials, by civilian scientists, who think of these as more symbolic than essentially weapons of war. For the Pakistanis, because this is a military program, there is a certain purposefulness that drives the Pakistani program that has no counterpart in India. And so it's not surprising to me when one looks at the growing size of the Pakistani arsenal, the sophistication of that arsenal, the diversity of that arsenal, uh, all these can, cannot be explained outside of the professionalism of a Pakistani military which essentially controls this national resource. So, you know, one of the interesting nuggets in your analysis uh, of Pakistan's program, Ashley, is you, you talk about how Pakistan has subtly shifted the focus of its nuclear deterrence from being solely about India to being mainly about India, and that, that semantics is important. So my question to you is, if not India... What other threats might Pakistan be focused on? So the threats that animated the Pakistanis in the last decade, especially, was a threat from the United States. And this was driven by a series of developments. If you remember, soon after 9-11, there was a real fear in the United States about loose Pakistani nukes, that Pakistani nuclear weapons could be captured by jihadi elements within the state. And the Pakistanis were really fearful that the United States, in a preemptive action, might attempt to secure these weapons. And that, of course, would be a threat to Pakistani security. This came home really vividly in the U.S. operation to uh, target Osama bin Laden, where completely unbeknownst to Pakistan, the U.S. was able to penetrate Pakistani airspace and reach its target. And after the Abbottabad raid, Pakistani fears about the security of the arsenal really peaked because the analogical argument that was made was if the United States could reach deep within Pakistan, unbeknownst to our military and security services, and target a critical, you know, target like Osama, why can't the United States do the same for our nuclear weapons? And so that drove them very much to think about what they needed to do to deter any such American action in the future. Now, this Pakistani obsession has waxed and waned, depending on circumstances. When U.S.-Pakistan relations were most fraught, which is when we were in Afghanistan and the Pakistanis were supporting the Taliban against U.S. forces, the anxieties about the United States had peaked. And during the second term of the Obama administration, you know, the Obama administration, in fact, went out of its way to you know, serve notice to the Pakistanis that there were certain keep out areas uh, that the Pakistanis should respect with respect to their own nuclear development. My own judgment now is that this has receded in Pakistani consciousness because the U.S. has exited Afghanistan. Um, the Pakistanis may still be fearful of the United States for so many reasons, but I don't see a palpable fear today of a U.S. threat to Pakistan's nuclear weapons simply because we are physically not in South Asia anymore. And to the, as long as we don't return, I think, you know, the Pakistanis will keep the United States in its peripheral vision, but I do not 
think it will be a critical driver. To the degree that it's a critical driver, I think it will focus more on investments aimed at uh, denial and deception, which is preventing the United States from learning about the location of these assets, rather than developing strategies to hold the United States at risk, which is what the Pakistanis toyed with. Uh, in the in the Obama years. So you remark towards the end of the book that the acquisition of nuclear weapons by both India and Pakistan should have served to dampen their mutual security competition, right? Uh, and But that hasn't been the case, I think, as is evident. How do you explain this deviation from what theory would suggest, right? That actually this would lead to a kind of ratcheting down uh, of tensions? I think the sort of conventional wisdom did not anticipate the intensity of the Pakistani commitment to pursuing the campaign to recover Jammu and Kashmir in a way that Pakistan finally did. Everyone assumed that the acquisition of nuclear weapons generally tends to congeal or to freeze competition because the risks of engaging in security competition under the nuclear umbrella are great. And so people learn to live with what they have, no matter how discontented they may be. But that was not true for Pakistan. Uh, Pakistan began to see nuclear weapons not simply as a risk, although they were suddenly cognizant of the risks, but began to see nuclear weapons most interestingly as a license with which they could challenge India, essentially through subconventional conflict. And there was a fascinating literature actually that appeared in the early 1980s in Pakistani military journals, where many Pakistani military officers began to ruminate or to speculate about the possibilities that nuclear weapons offered Pakistan for conducting the competition with India in new ways. And the conclusion that sort of derived from these discussions was that, yes, nuclear weapons have made conventional war unsafe, but they have opened the door to subconventional conflict. And we now have the license or the latitude to hit India below the belt, as it were, uh, through the use of violence that would remain under a certain threshold. And we can use that to weaken India. And I think the more adventurous Pakistanis thought that that was actually a strategy for bargaining with India, to bring India to the negotiating table, to discuss some alternative arrangement for control over Jammu and Kashmir compared to what exists today. And so the Pakistanis were in that sense very intellectually resourceful because they saw nuclear weapons not simply as protecting their own homeland, which it did, but also opening the door uh, to more creative, if I may use that word, to more creative forms of competition with India. So, Ashley, I want to sort of transition this conversation to thinking about the future, right? I mean, if you consider the findings of your report, uh, you consider the testimony that various U.S. military and civilian officials, from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs to the Secretary of Defense to the uh, Director of National Intelligence, have given to Congress over the past several years, there is a uh, broad spectrum of concern about Chinese nuclear capabilities. Uh, of course, many other technological uh, capabilities that, that China possesses, but but nuclear for sure. Um, 
and there is this feeling that perhaps the U.S. response is lacking uh, vigor, lagging behind. You know, as you, as you think about the framework U.S. policymakers should be should be uh, you know operating with. You know, how would you structure that? You know, in response to the facts that have been laid out in your report. So the first and most obvious change that we're going to have to deal with is if the Chinese program comes to maturity at the levels that people fear about, or at least the worst possibilities that people fear about, then we're not simply talking of a bipolar nuclear competition between the United States and Russia alone. A whole force structure, everything that we've done was designed to deal with that challenge. And until now, China was a lesser included case because it was a relatively small nuclear power. If China builds a 1,000 warhead nuclear force, I think it's going to put pressure on the United States to think not of nuclear bipolarity, but nuclear tripolarity. And the first consequence is going to be it is going to retard our ability to pursue further nuclear reductions, which has always been part of our policy, which is to move to the smallest levels of nuclear capability, you know, that could be engineered through arms control agreements. I think a, the emergence of a potent Chinese nuclear force is going to undermine the U.S. preference for further nuclear reductions. So that's point number one. Point number two is we do not know what the character of the strategic uh, uh, force in China would look like at maturity. Right now, uh, the strategic missiles that China has, including new missiles like the CSS-10s and CSS-20s, are still primarily city-busting weapons. And if they are aimed primarily at American cities or American counter-value targets, as they are called in the trade, you can maintain a modicum of stability because at the end of the day, we can also hit Chinese cities and the damage would be you know, absolutely fearsome on both sides, right? And you presume deterrence would work. But the question that I have in my mind is what if the emerging Chinese nuclear force is not simply counter-value capable, but increasingly becomes counter-force capable? That is, it's, it becomes nuclear forces that can be used to target U.S. nuclear weapons. Now, that creates an entirely different uh, set of problems uh, from the problems that we've had in the past vis-a-vis -vis China. And I think it will push U.S. Uh, you know, planners uh, to take nuclear counterforce uh, possibilities from China far more seriously. And that will mean, uh, you know, again, changing U.S. nuclear strategy in some interesting ways, uh, possibly building new kinds of capabilities. Uh, you know, the whole imperatives for damage limitation will become even stronger. The pressures for missile defense in the United States will become even stronger and so on and so forth. So you're going to see a much greater, you know, complexity uh, in the strategic environment. Uh, because China will have become a nuclear power on par with Russia uh, as far as the nuclear threats facing the United States are concerned. And that, to my mind, you know, changes the strategic environment in very, very significant ways. 
So, Asher, just one final question for you. You you write that the very logic that drove the Biden administration to uh, come up with AUKUS, which is, you know, the Australia-UK-US sort of pact to provide nuclear-powered submarines to Australia, that very logic carries over to the case of India, even though India, of course, is not a formal treaty ally. You you write about the possibility uh, of, a, of a different pact, INFRAS, between the India, France, and the United States. Tell us a little bit about the logic and what's the likelihood of something like this actually coming to fruition. So uh, there are several steps in the argument, right, which the report lays out. And it starts off with a very simple proposition that for India to be able to stand up to China across a range of contingencies that can be imagined over the next decade or the next two decades, India must be able to have essentially an invulnerable nuclear force. In other words, the Indian nuclear force must be survivable against the worst kinds of things you can imagine that China could do to it. As Sino-Indian relations begin to become testier, and as US-China competition becomes more intense. So I start off with that proposition. From there, I make the argument that India's primary nuclear reserves, which are land-based, would potentially become more vulnerable over time because improvements in Chinese intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance will enable them to identify the locations of these forces, Increases in the accuracy of China's nuclear weapons will allow China to target these forces more readily and so on and so forth. Which means that the Indian solution for the long term is essentially building a robust sea-based deterrent. I'm not persuaded today that India will be able to do this entirely on its own. And that opens the door for thinking about some sort of a partnership with India to make this happen. I think the ideal partners for India on this count is actually the ideal partners, France, because France has the kind of uh, undersea warfare capabilities, particularly nuclear submarine capabilities, that would be particularly attractive to India. But I do not imagine that the French would be willing to walk through this door without U.S. support. And therefore, it is in this context that I talk about a trilateral arrangement. Now, my own view is that sooner or later, India and France will begin to have this conversation. And I think it is in U.S. interest for us to be party to this conversation uh, from the get-go, because enabling, helping India build the survivable nuclear deterrent is in the common interest of both the United States as well as India particularly in an environment where uh, China is going to remain uh, the critical competitor for both countries. I mean, not to mention a great way to patch things up with France after the AUKUS deal. Absolutely. My guest on the show this week is Ashley J. Tellis. He holds the Tata Chair in Strategic Studies at the Carnegie Endowment. He's the author of a brand new report titled Striking Asymmetries, Nuclear Transitions in Southern Asia. Ashley, congrats on you know two decades of work. I, I hope that this book gets the wide readership it deserves. Thank you, Vinod. It's a pleasure to be here with you again. Grantham Asha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review to help others find the show. 
Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Cliff Jayapranada is our executive producer. Production assistance comes from Nitya Lab. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.